Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm Cecilia Mas. Today, we're going to be talking about discourses of feminism during periods of transition in the modern Middle East as part of an ongoing series on the Ottoman History Podcast on women, gender, and sex in the Ottoman and post-Ottoman worlds. We are thrilled to welcome to the podcast two brilliant feminist scholars. Marilyn Booth is Khalid bin Abdullah Saud, professor of in the study of the contemporary Arab world at Oxford University, and the author of many works on women's and gender history, including, most recently, Classes of Ladies in Cloistered Spaces, writing feminist history through biography in Fin de Siècle, Egypt. So Marilyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We're also joined today by Nova Robinson, who is Assistant Professor of History and International Studies at Seattle University, currently working on a book manuscript entitled For All the World's Women, Transnational Women's Movements in Syria and Lebanon, 1910 to 1960. Nova, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much. It's a great treat to be here. So our guests today will approach the question of feminist discourses in the modern Middle East from different parts of the 20th century. Marilyn will be speaking about Zainab Fawaz, a woman writer who published um, many essays and an incredible biographical dictionary in Egypt in the 1890s. Uh, Nova will be discussing her work on Noor Hamada, who was an important women's rights activist in interwar Lebanon. So I'm hoping that we can use this opportunity to think with the two of you and with Suchel, not just about these individual fascinating figures that you work on, but also about how textual and political production by and for women has changed over the 20th century more broadly, um, and why focusing on the history of women matters in the first place. So I thought, Marilyn, we could start um, just by asking you to tell us a little bit about Zainab Fawaz and her, um, some of her essays and her, particularly her biographical dictionary, uh, and, and how this sort of represents perhaps a writing of feminist history in its own terms. Okay, thank you. Um, Zainab Fawaz is a figure who has long fascinated me because she's quite different um, than any of the other uh, women who were writing in the same period. She was born sometime between 1845 and 1860 in Jebel Amel in the south of Lebanon, which was an important area of Shi'i um, scholarship. And she grew up in a family that was is not well known, um, although I think locally it was a family that had um, some, certainly had respectability and had a sense of its own genealogy. She grew up partly in the home of the local feudal, uh, feudal leader, feudal emir, and his spouse, Fatma bint al-Assad, who herself was not only literate, but was a poet. And so Zainab is um, said to have begun learning how to read and perhaps how to compose poetry at an early age um, with Fatima. At some point, and we do not know the circumstances, there are various narratives, she emigrated to Egypt, um, either with family members or after her brother had already emigrated there because she lived with her brother in Cairo for most of the rest of her life. And it was in Cairo that she began meeting literati, journalists, and she ended up carving out a place for herself as quite a not only well-known but very forthright commentator on public politics, writing on issues of the status of women and on questions around gender in the family, but also writing on many other issues. Um, for instance, she 
uh, was is the only woman I'm aware of who was among the many people who criticized Gabriel Hanoteau in 1900. Uh, he was the former foreign minister of France, and he wrote a series of quite appallingly ignorant articles about Islam in the modern world, um, and was responded to most famously by Muhammad Abdu, but also by many other people, including Zainab Fawaz. So she was a public commentator with quite a range of, on quite a range of subjects. Um, but the bulk of her work does have to do with the question of gender. And I think um, her work is important because it shows, as does the work of many other writers, men and women, how central questions of gender and the status of women, the education of girls, um, marriage, all these things, how central they were to the, the very basic questions that people were asking about the status of society. Um, this was, of course, not long after the British occupation of Egypt. And so the 1890s was a time of, of beginning of, of nationalist activism really beginning to crystallize. And it was a time when there were major daily newspapers as well as magazines in which people were asking these questions and were exhorting an ever broader readership to, to really think about them. So she, this is the atmosphere in which she's writing. I just want to say, you know, I love this story because it, it I think, interrupts so many assumptions or, or narratives that people often have about both women writers and the question of women in the modern Middle East. First of all, you know, we have Zainab Fawaz being in some ways trained or in the presence of a, a woman of an older generation who was herself, you know, um, literate and a writer, you know, long before the kind of modernization, late 19th century, um, things start going on. Secondly, you know, she's, uh, she is a, a woman from what is now, you know, southern Lebanon who moves to Egypt at the turn of the century, reminding us that this was also not a world contained by national boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And also she's so interesting because she writes, as you said, in, in a mainstream mm -hmm. press um, about mm -hmm. issues that are not, you know, that both are always about gender and women, but also are not explicitly always about gender and women, reminding mm -hmm. us that women writers had a lot to say on a lot of different subjects, um, not simply on matters that we typically associate with women in the home. Absolutely. And even when she is writing specifically about women, um, it's, it's very much about the whole, the way society works, the way society is set up, the role of religious discourse, um, religious training, understandings um, about um, about being a religious subject, being a moral subject. And so even when it is specifically about gender arrangements, um, it's also about many other things. I think another thing that is really interesting about her is that at a time when everyone was talking about, you know, society, the ummah, the nation, um, and where there was a very strong, what we might call a functionalist discourse about Women, in other words, girls' education was for the purpose of raising children to be the the backbone of a modern nation. Um, this was all in the name of and in the service of the nation. She was somebody who, very forthrightly, uh, did not see the nation's needs as the only end all, as the end all and be all of uh, girls' education or of anything else. She was very keen that women define their own aspirations and that they have ways to to make them happen. And she has a very canny discourse also around Western 
feminism. She's not claiming that it's something that is perhaps right exactly as it is for women in Egypt or elsewhere in the the Arab or the majority Muslim world. At the same time, she keeps bringing it in, and it's a it's a sort of peripheral model in a sense, um, one that should be maybe seen partially, um, but also recognized as um, as having components that might be part of a local gender politics. And I think we really see this, um, you know, in your work on her biographical dictionary, where as far as I understand, you know, she features both women from the West, mm -hmm. whose names, she's, names and stories she's come across, as well as figures from Arab Islamic history, as well as, you know, figures from her own milieu. Mm -hmm. So um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the the biographical dictionary, you know, what the genre is that she's fitting mm -hmm. into and how, you know, kind of her innovations or her kind of uh, twisting of that genre mm -hmm. helps to, you know, give us an example of some of the things you've been talking about in terms of relating to Western feminism, um, mm -hmm. thinking about women's aspirations in the context of m modernization and the nation. Yes, it's a fascinating work. Um, she uses the term tabaqat in her title, and that is immediately a signal that she is linking herself to a tradition, the very long tradition of writing biographical notices and putting them into the form of compiled, collected volumes. This is um, a tradition that goes back um, a very long ways in Islamic history and was always very important in terms of evaluating the sources for um, information about the Prophet and the earliest Muslim community. So in other words, was this transmitter of hadith a sound transmitter? What was his or her life like? How are the, you know, how how should we, we view this person? And it evolved into a kind of register of the history of various Muslim communities through time. Um, a record of mostly, it must be said, elite people. Um, and mostly of men, although women were always also a part of this tradition as subjects, although not as authors. So it's only in the 19th century, as far as we know, that women start writing these biographical dictionaries. And this one is um, entirely women. And it is also, as you mentioned, not just Muslim and or Arab women. It's also, it's women from everywhere. But Muslim and Arab, Turkish women, Indian women um, are the majority, and they're really at the center of the collection. And European and North American women and a few others are sort of there at the periphery, and I think that's a very important thing. She's really centering the Arab Muslim world as the center of, as, as the center of civilization in her time. As you said, she um, she includes much earlier figures. Um, the, the mother of the prophet, Emina, is actually the very first subject. It's convenient that her name comes almost first alphabetically, and she's right there. And this echoes the practice in medieval dictionaries of having Muhammad, the prophet, as the first subject of biography. So this is a kind of feminine version of that. Um, but then, of course, there are also contemporaries. And, for instance, Fatima bint al-Assad, her teacher, is one of the subjects. And there are many contemporary subjects. And actually, fascinatingly, 
She put out at least one ad in a major newspaper calling for women to send in their biographies. This was quite an amazing thing to do in a time when women's names were not even really supposed to be mentioned in public. Um, and we don't, of course, know what kind of response she got. She did include some contemporary women, but they were mostly women she knew. Um, so she may not have had much of a response, but the fact that she made this, this effort is, I think, itself quite fascinating. And one of the things that, you know, I really um, appreciate about your work is that you're very sensitive to not only the question of genre and its history, but, but also the kind of multiple readings or multiple kind of trajectories that we can read into these individual biographies and how, you know, while much of the writing in the press in 1890s Egypt was quite let's say, didactic on the question of women, right? You know, it was very um, sort of disciplinary. You know, it should be this and this and this. Uh, the biographies, as you read them, are much more kind of open um, to interpretation. And so I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about how you read the genre of biography and how, you know, we might think about biography as a, as a unique kind of historical mm -hmm. source. Yes, it's, it's really... Um fascinating in that sense because this what does in a sense fit into the genre or the practice of exemplary biographies, subjects who are worthy of emulation. Um, certainly the biographies are very traditional in that many of them start out with a series of superlatives. You know, she was the most knowledgeable of her age. She was the best, the paragon of, of good behavior, etc. But these women are not entirely morally exemplary characters. Um, and in fact, you know, there was a discourse at the time, as there has been in so many times and places, about the dangers of fiction reading, particularly for supposedly impressionable girls and young women that we, you know, one must be really careful not to give them novels. They might get ideas. Well, actually, one of the things that I find quite amusing about Foez's biographical dictionary is that, of course, presumably reading historical biographies, this is eminently respectable and safe and all the rest, but actually a girl picking up this volume could have gotten a great many ideas about behavior that their parents might not have approved of. Um, so there are some quite racy figures um, in, the, in the volume. And I think also, though, one of the things that she does, very interestingly, is to take idioms, take cliches, and actually turn them in a way to sort of semantically full usages. So the term masmuat al-kalima, um, someone who's word is heard, literally. It's an epithet. It means both somebody who's respected, a woman who's, who's respected and taken seriously. But she turns it into a, an epithet of authority and power. And this happens over and over throughout the work. I wonder, uh, for my benefit and also for our listeners who may be curious, you know, if you could give us an example of a racy figure, you know, either in the typical sense of the term or just in the sense that um, you know, the life story presented did not necessarily accord with what um, a respectable woman figure that might have appeared in other kinds of writing in that time. Well, one might be the Arsinoes. There are several Arsinoes Byzantine empresses, um, one of whom is said to have um, slain her husband or had her husband slain, um, another of whom rode out onto the battlefield and was her husband's closest advisor, which of course fits right into what we know about pre-Islamic 
um, Arab women in the Arabian Peninsula. So this is one way in which a European subject fits very much into, you know, there's a, there, there are a lot of stories here of um, bad husbands who get done away with. I mean, that's one way in which we have stories that one might see as questionably exemplary. Um, so that's just one example. Right, I would like to jump in here and ask you about like well, what kind of like an intervention that, um, that women did into the, in this particular genre of writing biographies. What is it like to read a man's biography through the lens of uh, women's? Now you just talked about a little bit about the, the husbands, but can you give us a little bit of like more like a framework to see the kind of like intervention that like Leila Fawaz did and as she's writing a man's biography. She doesn't, I don't have any biographies of men by her at all. Oh, okay. She is said though, I mean, it's an interesting question because she is said to have produced a manuscript which was a collection of biographies of men. Mm -hmm. And we don't know actually if it ever existed. Maybe she planned to do it, but never did. Maybe she did it and it got lost. Mm -hmm. um, but it's intriguing that apparently she did want to write one. But I think one thing that is really interesting so one way in which her writing of biographies of women differs from many of the biographies in Tabakat collections is precisely that the figures in those collections did tend, in most cases, I'm not, not always, but to be quite upstanding exemplary figures. Um, right. Whereas she has a lot of bad girls, we might right. say, in her collection. But also, I think it's quite interesting in that by calling for contemporary women to send their biographies in, I think she was possibly also aiming to produce produce something that would be in the genre of a kind of contemporary, almost who's who. There were, these did exist for men. There were these sort of professional, these volumes of, you know, professional men in Egypt at the time or professional men in the Ottoman Empire. And I wonder, I can't help wondering whether she also wanted to do that for women. That's not the way the work ended up. But, you know, the fact that some um, contemporary women are, in the book is important. One feature of the work that I do dwell on quite a lot is what I call patriarchal trauma. So again, stories of women who actually are not particularly well behaved, but in the life story you can tell it's because of the conditions they were in and specifically because of practices in the society that um, suppress their own desires their own notions of, of what they wanted, their own senses of, of ambition. And this is where I start thinking of, of this work as feminist history, um, rather than simply as a collection of biographies. So by contextualizing um, the choices women make, choices they don't get to make, situations that they find themselves in, in terms of, you know, life trajectories that you know mm -hmm. women are also human beings with lives and histories which constrain or enable certain mm -hmm. futures I mean this is you know to my mind um, quite a feminist point of view right. you know we might say yeah. so I think reading that into you know a text at this moment again where so much else that's being written about women is is so not flat but but didactic, mm -hmm. didactic. Um, is really right. a major intervention both you know, both in its own time and, and in ours, when we're mm -hmm. trying to think, you know, in the age of the nasty woman, you know, we're trying to like, the, this is mm -hmm. still, you know, mm -hmm. trying to grapple with the, the stereotypical trajectories that women are supposed to live 
um, against the lived lives that people mm -hmm. actually have mm -hmm. um, is, a, is a feminist project. Yeah, I think so. It's intriguing that in her preface, she actually does say that she's featuring women who were known for um, doing good and avoiding bad. Um, and one wonders, did it just sort of get out of hand or was this kind of a way of signaling perhaps that her idea of good and bad was different than the, the usual assignment of that, of virtue to women? Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here today with Sechil Yilmaz, Nova Robinson, and Marilyn Booth, uh, discussing discourses of feminism during periods of transition in the modern Middle East. So I want to turn now to Nova, who's going to discuss her research on a somewhat later period um, in the history of women and or feminism in the Middle East. Uh, and Nova will be discussing um, Noor Hamada, who was a women's rights activist uh, in interwar Lebanon. So I'm hoping, Nova, you can just start out by telling us a little bit about Noor, um, where she comes from, what kind of world she inhabits. Noor Hamad is a very interesting figure. She's very unique in the history of the Lebanese women's movement, as far as I can tell, as far as my research has led me to believe. She was born in either 1887 or 1897, and it's important to pay attention to those differences in birth date because it puts her at different junctures with regards to the end of the Ottoman Empire, with regards to the end of the mandate. And these are those transitions that I think are very formative in shaping her as an activist. She was born to a notable and very influential Druze family in Baklin, in the Shouf district of Mount Lebanon. Her father and her brother both supported her education. So she was an interesting woman from this juncture because she was educated at home rather than in missionary schools. It doesn't appear that she ever graduated from college. She did spend some time at the University of San Josef in Beirut, which is a Jesuit college in the city, uh, but it doesn't appear that she ever graduated. She, after graduating or at least attending the university for some time, she was quite globally mobile. And this is really what makes her a unique figure in the Lebanese women's movement. She was in Dearborn, Michigan, and in New York City, and in Geneva, but also spent time more locally in Damascus. She was in Dearborn, Michigan, following family migratory patterns there. Her brother was there, and she spent some time there teaching Arabic. While she was there, she was trying to research the women's movement in the United States so that she could write a book about that movement to share some of the knowledge of what the Americans were doing, what was working, and what could possibly be used in the Lebanese context. This is fascinating, Noah. Thank you. Uh, and I would like to um, 
the, the way that we introduce uh, Noor is like and being a uh, feminist activist, and I was I just want you to like a little bit unpack for us and historicize for us like what is it to be an activist. At the time, she was very active and like traveling and following uh, migratory roots of the family, and at the same time, women's movement um, originating in the Middle East at the time. Can you please like um, explain it and help us explore? So, women's activism takes on many different forms at this juncture. I would say that some of the earliest forums for women's activism came from women's literary journals and women's literary salons. Uh, those of Zainab Vouaz, for example, or other figures more locally in Lebanon, they're very famous uh, salons. It's not clear that Noor was ever a participant in these literary salons, but I think that those salons are really the germ of women's consciousness in the region. And I think from kind of a women's consciousness about their status in society, they start to clamor for rights, especially as the mandate is imposed, and they start to see the hypocrisies of the mandatory system. They, there's perhaps a moment wherein they thought this mandate system might help them in claiming rights, but it's quickly apparent that the mandate system is not going to live up to part of their mandate. They are not going to deliver the rights that they were supposed to to women. They're part of the, the structure of the League of Nations mandate system was to help the native populations in the mandate improve their educational systems, improve their legal systems, so that they would be ready for self-rule. Of course, for those of you who have read the text of the actual mandates, there's no date in which those mandates are set to expire. And of course, this is a problem, and it's not unnoticed by men and women who are trying to change that. So women's activism in this juncture then is working to raise consciousness about women's status, and then to stand against the political systems that are in place during the Ottoman era and the Mandate era to try to achieve rights from those systems, what those rights looked like, were quite similar to what women's rights organizations in Europe and the United States were looking to achieve. They wanted suffrage, they wanted citizenship, they wanted right to education, but they were looking for these rights to be delivered through more Eastern traditions. And there are some activists, though Noor is not among them, who claim for an Eastern women's rights framework where women's rights would be delivered not through the state, but rather through the family and kind of trying to claim indigenous modes of rights delivery as a system that could counterbalance the notions of women's rights that were emerging elsewhere in the world. So that's so fascinating because what you do is to open up this period, this interwar period, as a moment where, you know, there was this faith in the promise of this kind of language of rights that hadn't been completely defined. Um, and as you note, you know, how it was actually going to be implemented was still very unclear. Um, but that there were also other visions of what, you know, women's futures um, or empowerment would look like. So I'm wondering if you can just sort of situate Noor Hamada in the Lebanese women's movement and sort of what you know, who was she talking to in Lebanon, um, either male or female? Uh, and, and what, you know, how do you sort of see her as a figure, um, either, you know, in some ways at the center, but in other ways also kind of outside the mainstream of the Lebanese women's movement? I think Noor is the perfect figure for demonstrating the diversity of perspectives about women's role in Lebanon. She was part of some of the very first Lebanese women's organizations that were umbrella organizations that brought together the multitude of women's organizations that were operating during the interwar period. I think it's important to note that World War 
One was a really important politicizing and galvanizing moment for women in the region. They became active in the public sphere in a very new way. And they didn't stop that activism after the war. And so we see the emergence of new forms of educational activism and healthcare activism and providing resources to orphans and these types of services that many women identify as something that the mandate government should be providing. There are a series of women's conferences in the region between 1928 and 1938 that offer these forums for women, not just in Syria and Lebanon to get together to talk about their status as Arab women, but for women from around the Arab world to come together to talk about the issues that they're facing and what they come to understand is that they have some shared challenges. And some of those shared challenges are these imperial governments that are essentially curtailing women's claims for rights. So Noor is trying to be active in this movement. She establishes a women's organization called the Women's cultural assembly, and this is meant to forge connections with the international women's movement. So it's important to put the Syrian and Lebanese women's movement alongside a larger international movement for women's rights that's happening elsewhere in the world. Syrian and Lebanese women are aware of this, and they're trying to become participants in this movement. Noor founds this organization, joins the umbrella organization called the Lebanese Women's Council, Lebanese Women's Society, kind of depending, the name changes a little bit over time. And these other organizations have an election to see who should be president of this council. And Noor puts her name in and she is not elected. So she ultimately decides that she's going to create a splinter organization. And so I think this is really important to preserve, though, that there is an internal debate about who should lead this movement, what issues are important. Right. It's not a, a unified movement. And I think that it it's important to flesh it out in its complexity, the debates that are happening on the internal level. And so there's a question of what do we do with regards to the international? So there's a focus on local issues and a regional conversation, and Noor brings the conversation internationally. So I really like this because it also, I've been thinking as you've been talking about sort of the complexities of trying to articulate an internationalist feminist agenda in a colonial context or a mandate context, right? So I'm wondering what are the relationships between women um, like Noor I mean, by which I mean, you know, Lebanese women who are active in the feminist movement uh, and, and French women and mandate authorities. I mean, how, how does the mandate deal with um, these, you know, to use Marilyn's phrase from earlier, these bad girls? Uh, mm -hmm. And, and how, how are French feminists squaring, you know, the demands of these women in their own terms, right, in terms of rights with ongoing, you know, mandate authority? It's a great question. So there's an organization called the Drop of Milk Society that is a global society that starts in France with the objective of trying to make sure that poor women give sanitary milk to their babies to help those babies grow, which fits into some of your own research, Susie, about kind of maternalism as a larger project within the colonial context or standing against the colonial context. So the Drop of Milk Society spreads globally through French imperial channels. And there is an organization that is active in Beirut uh, and in Damascus. Uh, and this is where French women are working in the mandate. They're working through the French imperial women's organization rather than the indigenous women's organizations. And so there are a series of women's societies that emerge that try to emulate what some of these larger 
international organizations are trying to do. The Drop of Milk Society is not populated by very many local women, though that there are some local women who are participants. In Libby Thompson's fabulous work, Colonial Citizens, she is, is able to engage in a series of oral histories with some of the women who are in those organizations. And one of the pieces that she pulls out is this narrative that some of the women who were in the Drop of Milk Society were some of the very same women who were populating the organizations that stood against the French mandate. And I think this is an important point to demonstrate the fluidity of women's alliances and how they were very creative about where they positioned themselves. Their objective was rights, and they were willing to be quite loose in who they affiliated with in order to achieve those rights. If the French mandate government was going to deliver those rights, then they would collaborate with the French mandate government. But if the French mandate government was not going to, and of course, this is a moment where in France, women do not have the vote. So the French mandate government is not a great ally in this project. I think it's important to kind of pay attention to where and when they're claiming a Syrian identity, when they're claiming an Arab identity, when they're claiming an Eastern identity. And these play out against these different forums. Uh, and this also builds out towards the international sphere. So the Drop of Milk Society is an international organization. It moves through the French colonial channels, but there are the kind of the big three international organizations, the International Council on Women, the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Those organizations, by the beginning of the mandate period, have about 45 million members around the world, the majority of whom are middle-class women in Europe, most of them are from Western Europe and Scandinavia. There are many Americans who are members as well. There are not very many members from the Arab world. And this is why Noor establishes her cultural assembly in 1928 to try to gain entry into this organization. So Nova, I think it's so interesting that you raise this point about um, the kind of international trajectory or dimension of Noor Hamada and her and some of her colleagues uh, feminism that they were trying to draw on multiple scales right on you know the international on the eastern on the Arab and also on the local as as kind of strategies or languages for attaining their goals um, and so I'm just wondering you know uh, if there's a history to this if if women also like Zainab Fawaz from the 1890s were um, were looking outwards in their uh, either in their audience or in their agenda well, they definitely were in her period, although Zainab Fawaz was not of a status or probably of a, a time period when she could easily travel, and she did not know other languages. Um, and so she never traveled outside of Egypt and the Ottoman Empire. But she was very aware of what was going on elsewhere, and I think this very much parallels what Nova was saying about being able to draw on different alliances and different aspects. Um, so for Fawez, she could say, we must support and think about what the suffrage suffragists in England are doing. Um, she brings this up right after yet another suffrage vote is defeated in Parliament in 1893 after Gladstone has intervened to say, Mm, not really the right time to think about women's suffrage. So it's narrowly defeated. And in the wake of this, um, in a dialogue with another woman, which is published in the Egyptian press, Fawez is very strongly supportive of this without saying that this, again, as I said earlier, is necessarily a model that we want to follow. But it's a very positive evocation of what the women of England are doing. And at the same time, she is very clearly 
critical of the British locally and what they're doing. And so it is very possible to do both of these things at once. Um, but for her, there's really no possibility of traveling. In fact, she has this dialogue with um, Bertha Palmer, who is the head of the Committee of Women in Chicago, putting together the Women's Building and Women's Library for the 1893 Chicago Exposition. And they speak in these letters, which then I think very significantly get published in the local press about why Foez cannot travel to go there and represent Arab women as Bertha Palmer asks her to do. And this becomes an opportunity, a rhetorical opportunity to talk about Muslim women's lives. So Nova, I'm wondering then by your period, you know, how the kind of, um, that the kind of texture or the kind of possibilities that are open for women in the kind of international sphere you know, are they, you know, obviously the technology has changed, right? Travel has become easier um, in some ways, you know, communications technology is different. But, but how, do you, how, do, how do you compare your period, I guess, to, to the 1890s? So I would say that women's organizations constitute one of the very first international spheres. And by the 1920s and 1930s, that international spheres coalesced without the participation of Arab women for the most part. Huda Shirawi being a notable exception to this. She is an Egyptian feminist who becomes a member of, I believe it's the International Women's Suffrage Association, and she's on the board there, but it's really a token position. She's not allowed to have much power within the organization. That sphere is closed to Arab women, as is the larger sphere of the League of Nations. They are part of the mandate system, and if they need to raise any concerns, they need to raise those concerns through the mandate government. As noted before, the mandate government was not very favorable to women's concerns, and so they're closed out of these two international spheres. Towards the end of the League of Nations moment, 1938, the League is really falling apart. We think about what's happening in Europe. The League is falling apart. And this is the moment the League finally says, okay, we'll take women's considerations into concern. I think this has a lot to do with the fact that the League is trying to desperately save itself as war is breaking out in Europe. At this juncture, the League commissions the very first global study into the international status of women. The Committee of Experts on the Legal Status of Women has seven members, four women, three men, one American, and the rest are European. Noor Hamada notices the composition of this organization and really tries to advocate for the creation of an Eastern representative on this committee. And we see Arab women trying to do the same thing within the context of the larger international women's organization. So they are trying to position themselves in these international conversations about women's rights because they understand that these international spheres are very important, that if these international spheres are developed without representation from the East or the Arab world, that the discourses of women's rights are not going to represent how they need those rights to be structured, that they can import them into the period of independence. If these vocabularies of women's rights are seen as having the taint of Western influence, they're not going to be able to bring that vocabulary home and advocate for them at home. And so there's this movement to try to shape these international spheres in their favor they're not successful, but they're worth preserving nonetheless. Absolutely. And what an, I mean, kind of a fascinating and perhaps counterintuitive contrast between the world of the 1890s, where Zainab Fawaz is um, using 
the biographies of Western women and writing them in her own idiom, uh, in her own, you know, in, in a genre that comes from the Arab Islamic world, um, and is using them to kind of suggest uh, non-traditional sometimes or, or uh, scandalous life paths for women to this moment in the 1930s when Arab women are really trying to actually become part of international both feminist and, and more broadly, you know, institutions and are being shut out, right? And so then in a way, you know, we can see maybe the opening and closing of a certain kind of faith in an international sphere in that time. I think that's very true. And I think we also, though, need to look at um, trajectories within these individual women's lives. So Zainab Fawez, I mentioned her response to Gabrielle Hanateau. By 1900, Fawez is much less willing to talk about Western women's experience as something that relates to her own experience and those of her compatriots. Um, she publishes a couple of, of articles, again, in 1900, basically suggesting we can no longer ignore what the West is doing, not that we could before, but we have to also pay attention to the hypocrisy that is built into the imperialist mandate in the broader sense. And so I think even before the period that Nova is talking about, there's a great deal of, of disillusionment. And it's not as if Fawez was embracing Western ways in the 1890s. She was not. But she was open. There was a conversation still. Whereas by 1900, I think she felt that that conversation was perhaps no longer possible. This has been a fascinating conversation and one wants to continue like for hours and hours. But before before we close up the conversation, like we've, we've talked about like Fawaz and the kind of uh, the genre and the writings and the essays where she basically, in a very breathy in a way, that she set the stage for it and women's history and putting the characters in the spotlight and let, helping us to see the, the historical trajectory of a good women, bad women, on, and everything in between. And on the other hand, uh, as we titled this conversation, Discourses of Feminisms in the Middle East uh, during periods of transition, that as we transition to the interwar era in 1930s, the whole international context, and the, the kind of like mobility of women as the agents of discourses of um, women's rights claims and their activism is the fascinating um, threads of uh, conversation that we had today. I would like to ask like, um, a little bit of a, like a larger picture in terms of like the, the gainings of the field of writing uh, women's history and the kind of like new directions uh, that we're going to have in the future on the basis of uh, this conversation. What do you see the kind of sources that you're drawing in? It's kind of like promising new possibilities about writing um, Middle East history um, and in, in the larger sense of Middle Eastern uh, histories and also the uh, new discourses of feminisms. So really a, an open-ended question, so we don't have to conclude anything, but just to um, just to make our audience um, be uh, impatient about the next episode about the same theme. I think that there are many ways in which um, the study of gender opens up new questions, new narratives, and also new sources, um, as you were suggesting. I think that in the study of the 19th century, which now has become a, a, 
a vibrant area of study. Um, thank goodness it, it for a long time was regarded as not necessarily worth paying that much attention to, but now there are a lot of people working on it. And people are using new sources. Um, for me, for instance, um, as I think about my next project, I want very much to use sources such as novels um, to think about changing patterns of understanding and behavior and aspiration that have everything to do with understandings about gender um, and gender arrangements um, in society. I've just been putting together um, a new course on the 19th century. And it's interesting because I just, no matter what I was trying to look at, I kept coming back to gender. And I don't think that's just because of my interests. I think it's because it is so central at the time. And so I think um, there's a lot of recognition of that. I think also the study of translation and ad adaptation of texts from elsewhere, not just from Europe, but texts coming from the Ottoman Empire, coming from India. How are these being looked at in the Arab world. So I think that there's a lot of new energy that's coming into this. Also, the study of people who were not as well known. Um, one of the things we've suffered from, I think, um, in the study of women's history and gender in the Middle East is what I would call the Qasim Amin effect. Qasim Amin was undoubtedly a very important figure, a lawyer in Egypt who wrote a book published a book in 1899, Tahrir al-Mar'a, The Emancipation of Women, partly because of its title, I think. It was really explosive and generated many, many responses. It has often been taken as the beginning of the debate um, and as the first seed of feminism, when in fact Qasim Amin was, already, was coming into an already well-developed discursive field. People had been talking about this for decades. And, but by the early 1920s, Qasim Amin is being called the father of Egyptian feminism, or even sometimes the father of Arab feminism, I think. And this means that there has been a sort of dampening effect on studying other people. But I think we're beyond that, and we're looking at, it, it also offers us a new way to think about Qasim Amin. All right, absolutely. I think there are lots of very fascinating and new directions that we can take the field of women and gender history in the Middle East in, we have seen what women and gender history can do to studies of nation states, especially with regards to Algeria and to Egypt. And I would encourage people to continue to explore how periods of transition in nation states bring to the fore questions of women's status or kind of that larger turn of the 20th century women's question. I think that there's a lot of work that can be done in that sphere but I also would encourage people to start to think beyond the nation state, to think more regionally, because these borders that we are thinking through were not borders that existed during the lifetimes of some of the women that we study. They were imposed during that period and they took on new meaning, but they weren't normal and natural during that time period. And so I think thinking regionally with regards to what conversations were happening across borders between Syria and Lebanon, between Lebanon and Egypt, between Egypt and the West, across borders, these conversations, I think, would be very interesting to explore in a deeper way. And I would also encourage people to start tracing the Middle East and the globe. I think tracing 
and that's a new turn, I would say, in the field in general, but gender hasn't been foregrounded too much in these conversations. And I would say that is another area of inquiry that could be very rich and fruitful going forward. And of course, I think we all are slightly biased towards our own present avenues of inquiry. I do think that there's a lot to be said about taking questions of women and gender in the Middle East and tracing that through international channels, especially international channels of governance. I think when we do so, we realize that questions of women and gender in the Middle East not only have shaped the construction of nation states such as Lebanon and Syria, but also how those discussions that were happening in the region shaped the international sphere. I think it's so important to start thinking about how the Middle East was not just acted upon by other surrounding nations or the international community, but how the Middle East has shaped the world around it. And I think gender is a great lens to do so. Well, that is uh, a great note to finish on here, which is, you know, as we look towards new directions in the field, um, whether they are new kinds of sources, um, new kinds of readings, or even the turn to global history, that it's not just a question of adding women and gender to the mix, but actually that, you know, attending to issues about women and gender can take us to the heart of some of the transformations, both in the history of the Middle East and in the transformations in our discipline. Um, so I want to thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Um, for people who want to find out more, we will uh, we'll post a bibliography on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also pick up a copy of Marilyn's most recent book on Zainab Fawaz, Classes of Ladies in Cloistered Spaces, Writing Feminist History Through Biography in Fiendisik, Egypt. And look out for Nova's very forthcoming uh, book, which will be tentatively entitled For All the World's Women, Transnational Women's Movements in Syria and Lebanon, 1910 to 1960. We also encourage all of our listeners to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes, including others in our excellent co-curated series with Sechil on women, sex, and gender in the Ottoman and post-Ottoman world. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. Hey,